Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 154, and today's guest is Mona Bajor, entrepreneur, advisor, author, and investor. As her intro suggests, Mona has accomplished a lot throughout her career. She always knew that someday she wanted to start a company, and it was her experience working in the fashion industry which led her to start Jor. She recognized an opportunity to start a company that brought the antiquated wholesale buying process between brands and buyers into the digital era with an online marketplace. In addition, Mona recently authored a book titled Startups and Downs, The Secrets of Resilient Entrepreneurs, which was published back in September. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what it's like writing and getting a book published, Mona's background story and what led her down the path of starting a company, all the details on Jor and how they modernized and disrupted the fashion industry, her current role as a partner with her investment firm, King Circle Capital, hiring advice for first-time founders, when is the right time to raise venture capital funding, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, we are publishing this podcast in mid-December. As the end of the year is approaching, we'll be taking a break from the podcast. We already have lots of episodes with entrepreneurs and investors lined up for 2020. So we'll resume our normal publishing schedule starting January 6th. I hope you enjoy the holidays and here's to a new decade. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mona. Mona, thanks so much for joining us. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me, Keith. Uh, so, Mona, you're a founder, CEO of uh, you know startups. You're an angel investor. You're an author. So you've done a lot. So we're going to talk about a lot throughout our podcast. Uh, but to kick things off, you know, I did want to you know focus on the side that you know you recently published a book, um, and the whole process of writing a book seems fascinating to me, as well as the you know getting a book published in today's era uh, is just something that seems um, you know very uh, more accessible, but even more difficult. Um, so anyways, I wanted to talk to you about that process. What was it like to get, you know, writing a book, uh, and then, you know, kind of going through the, the whole process of getting it published? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, uh, startups and downs in 90 days. The agreement I had with the publisher that approached me to write the book was like, you know, that contractually they ask their authors to write books in three months, which, you know, is kind of intense when you hear about that at first, but then I kind of appreciated it because, you know, I didn't want to get down the booby trap of, you know, writing a book and, you know, putting it off and starting it and taking like a year to do it. Um, So that was interesting to kind of have that level of intensity for a short amount, relative short amount of time, um, but ended up being positive. Um, but what I didn't realize was kind of, it's not just writing a book, it's the marketing of, of the book. Um, and it's almost like any consumer product because there's so many books out there, as you alluded to, and you have to kind of cut through the noise. And so it kind of made me realize, you know, when you write a book, you have to really make sure that there's an audience in mind and so that you can market to that audience, both online as well as offline. And so for the last two months, um, kind of in my free time, I've been traveling to tech conferences and business schools um, and kind of business organizations um, around the country to sell this book, um, which has been quite nice because it is like a a already made audience. Um, So there is a target audience as you would have in a consumer product. 
that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I like that approach where it's like, okay, 90 days, I have to tackle this versus I would be the type that would be like, okay, I got a year and then I would keep like over analyzing things versus getting it done and, and creating a great product within a time crunch. Yeah, I think constraints um, in book writing as well as entrepreneurship are really good. I mean, it's always like, I don't have enough time to do this or I don't have enough money or enough people. And I think the constraints ultimately help people produce, you know, their best work. Um, yeah. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Mm. Um, I grew up in uh, outside of Buffalo, New York. Um, and I lived there all throughout high school till I was 17 and, um, really enjoyed it. It was really down to earth community. Both my parents were business owners and I was as a child, I mean, I was, you know, pretty studious, um, growing up in, uh, kind of a first generation immigrant household. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, pressure to do well in school and sports and, you know, kind of be that all rounded person to get you into a good college. So I was pretty studious. I mean, I had friends, but um, the focus was really just, you know, around like, how do you get into the you know best college you can get into? Which worked out because you went to Penn. So you went to Ivy League. So why did you decide to study human biology? Well, I mean, uh, at that time, you know, my parents as entrepreneurs were really like, you know, you don't want to study business at Penn. You, you should really study medicine because that's kind of a safer uh, career move. Um, entrepreneurship is risky and it's stressful and it's so much work. Like, why don't you just go be a dermatologist? I would get like, you know, uh, at the time we had answering machines, I would get messages on my answering machine saying like, oh, so-and-so is, you know, going to be an anesthesiologist or a dermatologist. You should, you know, you should really get serious about that. Um, because, you know, it was like a good income and safe and, you know. Out of all the professions, I think dermatology is probably the way to go in, in the field of medicine. It seems like very, yes, you know, yeah. like you kind of control your own schedule. I don't know. It just seems like those, those doctors have a, I mean, they obviously have complexity and some horrifying things that they have to see, but, uh, it just seems like that would be a, a, a safe one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like nothing is really safe. Like there's, right. you know, life is just hard in general and there's kind of, you know, peaks and valleys, but it was just kind of their attempt to, I guess, protect me or shield me. And so I kind of went down that path and I, I really enjoyed it. I, it was, you know, I, I like the, you know, the human genome project was getting up and running at Penn and that was super interesting. And, you know, working in the lab was interesting and, you know, the, the science and the meth, like the, the scientific approach in, you know, creating experiments, that was really fun. I worked in a lab, but it just ultimately, um, medicine wasn't for me or scientific research wasn't for me. I ended up doing what most kind of pre-professional kids do at Penn, which is like go into consulting or investment banking. I chose consulting. Um, and that was kind of just the nature of the environment. Everyone was just kind of getting jobs and, you know, focused on how much they were making. And it just felt like more tangible and more interesting to me. And then after, um, your work as a consultant, you went back to B school. So you went to Wharton. Um, yeah. Why did you decide to go back to B school? 
I mean, as a consultant, I felt like we were creating these presentations, these PowerPoint decks and handing them over to teams like management teams or private equity firms that were looking to buy companies. And it was kind of like one and done. And um, I didn't get the satisfaction of like seeing our recommendations um, through. And so I was like, I want to go back to Wharton and get like fundamental, you know, understanding of accounting and finance and marketing and operations and just become an operator. Like I, I just don't see myself kind of ever becoming a CEO via, you know, management consultancy. Although, you know, many people have done that. I just didn't see like that was like a, a very easy path. So that's why I decided to go back. And then you ended up, uh, you know, in, in the fashion industry. So was that something that was always kind of of interest for you? Well, I wanted to be an operator in an industry. And when I was consulting, I was like one of the few women on the team. And so anytime something would come in that was like consumer products or fashion or retail, I'd get staffed on those businesses. <laughs> and so um, I just, that was an industry that I knew and had instinct around. So it made sense for me to kind of pursue um, an operating roles within the fashion industry. So what were the types of roles that you had in, in that industry? And like, what did that, that teach you? Yeah, I mean, I was a buyer for several years. And then I was on the sell side, not particularly like the I wasn't selling the garments, but I was kind of in strategy roles that were helping optimize the selling um, at, you know, luxury houses and brands. And that experience was really eye opening, because I realized like 10 years ago that that buying and selling that where, you know, millions and billions of dollars of, of, um, you know, product was being transacted was like very inefficient. I mean, it was happening completely offline. It was like pink paper goes to you, yellow copy goes to me. Um, everything was written. Um, product was being bought off of sketches, not actual garments because, you know, the garments are produced much later. So uh, it just, it made me realize like there is an opportunity to bring technology to the fashion world. 10 years ago, you know, fashion was not embracing anything related to technology at all. Like they didn't want to be on social media. They didn't have, you know, they were barely using Excel. <laughs> Shocking, right? Because this isn't yeah. this isn't like the the nineties. This is you know two thousand and what two thousand seven. Yeah, yeah, ten. Shocking. Um, but did you think you always wanted to start a company? Because you know you highlighted both your your parents were entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think it was something that was intentional. I think working for other people and realizing like I don't want to make my boss's mistakes or the CEO's mistakes. Like I want to be in a position where I can make my own mistakes and kind of quickly learn from them. I just worked for a lot of people where I was like, you know what? That doesn't make sense. Like there's no strategy. There was a lot of like shooting from the hip, like in retail, you see this happening a lot now too, where it's like, okay, we're not doing well. We have to, you know, relay earnings in, in a couple of weeks. So we're going to have a promotion, devalue our brand, mark everything down, get rid of this inventory and, you know, make our, try to hit our sales numbers. And it was like, is that just kind of what I would do? Probably not. Like, I don't want to devalue my brand. I've been working so, you know, hard to build it and so on. So I just was tired of kind of working for people and felt like I know that there it's you know there's going to be mistakes but I'd rather they be my own. 
Well, let's talk about the company that you founded out of, you know, recognizing this problem in the industry. So what are the details on Jor? So Jor is a marketplace for brands and retailers to connect and transact online. And through that connection, because it happens online, there's a lot of capabilities that the platform can offer that the offline experience does not. And that's like, you know, searching. So, you know, at, at the time, like 10 years ago, wholesale could not search for like the best plaid shirt. So you and I can search for the best plaid shirt, but you know, the buyer at, um, you know, Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus can't search for the best. They have to physically go to booth to booth to booth. There's a lot of data and analytics in, um, in terms of real time analysis. So if you're at a trade show at the Javits Center and you've just sold a lot of product, um, if you're if you're marking down everything on pen and paper, it's hard to tally everything up and see what your best sellers are. So there's a lot of analytics that can be offered by making these transactions online. Um, and so that was the concept of Jor, and then you know that's what we built. Um, and so it was really easy to kind of get to product market fit because I was a buyer for several years and I was the seller, and so I had a lot of empathy for the for the customer. And did that experience in the industry help you as far as getting traction initially? Because you, you know, you're building out a double-sided marketplace where you have to have both sides saying, yeah, we want to be part of this. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely hurt, um, helped from, from an introduction standpoint. Like I could go to Diane von Furstenberg. I could go to Stephen Allen um, and say, you know, can you please join this platform? We haven't built it yet, but would you be interested? So it definitely helped from uh, an introduction standpoint perspective, but more importantly, it helped from an instinctual perspective because I've been in the space for so long. Um, I had a good sense of how to get that kindling in the marketplace um, because it's very expensive and can be a slog to kind of tackle both the demand side and the supply side. So just having industry expertise, I could formulate a strategy on how to kind of use supply to get demand. So it like, and I always wonder this, so it's, uh, you know, the chicken and the egg with marketplaces. So, so you, you were like, we need supply before we can create the demand side. So you went supply first, right? That's usually the way that these marketplaces are built. Yeah. From a B2B perspective, it tends to be supply first. B2C yeah. tends to be, you know, demand to mm -hmm. some degree first. But um, what I was able to do was kind of build supply and then, get the brands to invite all of their um, customers onto the platform. So build functionality where they would want to do business with all their customers. So that was like a cheap and inexpensive way to drum up demand. Got it. Okay. Now you self-funded the business for a stretch before raising outside venture funding. So what, what was the, the decision there? And what do you think, like, how do you think that helped your business in the long run? I mean, self-funding was just a, a way for me to prove to myself before I went to anyone else for funding that I could monetize the business, that people would actually pay for it. Um, and so that was, that was really what I aimed to do with self-funding. And then um, once I was able to prove that the market was big enough, not build all the features and not, you know, kind of you know, do it all by myself, but just kind of prove that the market was there, the product market fit was there, um, that there was, you know, a lot of customers to sell into, then I decided to raise capital. So at that point, was it like, okay, I've got product market fit. Now I need the cash to really scale and grow this in terms of the transaction volume. So, so how did you, you know, 
start to really build the engine and build the business at scale? So I think it was really just, you know, how do we get the best brands um, who could bring the best retailers onto the marketplace? Um, and once we were able to do that across a variety of segments like shoes, handbags, accessories, um, ready to wear, um, then that was when we realized, okay, we can really kind of build up the number of salespeople we have. We can build up the number of salespeople we have across the world. So open up different offices and kind of put our foot on the, on the gas. So at what, like how, how far did you take the business? Like what was the scale as far as the, you know, the number of transactions that were being processed through Jor? Yeah. I mean, we, I think in 2016, 2017, it was about $10 billion of GMV going through the platform. Um, So now it's like, you know, through the life of the business, it's around 30 billion GMV going through the platform. So, so looking back, like what's, um, you know, kind of things that you were like, wow, in the early days of Jorah, wish we would have done this differently because <laughs> you just didn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think like it's hindsight is always twenty twenty, and I try not to kind of like relive the past and say, oh, like life would have been better if I did X, Y, and Z. Um, I mean, you know, had I known, I mean, I think a lot of entrepreneurs do this, like you just don't know how, how much capital it's going to take to really kind of get to that tipping point. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if anything, it's like bootstrap longer um, because, you know, there could have been, you know, I think that's kind of like the only thing that I would have done differently. No, King Circle Capital. So is that your investment firm as an angel investor? Is that what that entity yeah, is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, my portfolio. Yes. So it's my own capital. Um, and we've allocated, um, money to invest in a variety of businesses. Um, startups is a very small piece of, of my portfolio. I mean, uh, most of my investments are in real estate and franchises and kind of cash flow positive businesses, um, that are not venture backed, but I have made, I have made some venture backed startup investments. Okay. So yeah, you, you're busy across lots of things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, just really about wealth creation. I mean, we spend a lot of time kind of creating wealth for other people. And so, you know, this is really just a vehicle an invest, a personal investment vehicle to kind of create personal wealth. Well, let's get back to your book. So startups and downs, the secrets of resilient entrepreneurs. So, um, so how did the book come about? You did talk a little bit, the publisher reached out to you. So, so someone came to you saying, Hey, we're thinking about, uh, your story and some lessons learned. Like how does, how did that, you know, decision? Yeah, it was just someone approached me or the, a, a publisher approached me to say, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, well, not really, but it's funny that you asked because I had been advising, you know, so many first-time founders for the last several years, um, people asking for advice or just, you know, businesses that I've invested in. And I realized, like, I was giving the same kind of advice over and over again on a variety of topics. Um, you know, anything from, you know, obviously fundraising, which is a hot topic, but, you know, how to deal with competition, how to deal with, like, team morale issues, how to deal with work-life balance. And, um, I was like, you know what, maybe it's, it's better to just kind of get, um, my thoughts down on paper in a traditional form and kind of get, get the ideas out that I'd been sharing kind of on a one-to-one level, um, kind of in scale. 
Because it's it's like you, you phrase it as more of like a guidebook, right? So you have, you know, examples of things that people should be doing. There's advice. And then there's also uh, other entrepreneurs that you've interviewed that share kind of their lessons learned as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, first thing I wanted to do was make it, you know, kind of very conversational, easy to read. Um, the second thing I wanted to do was make it like quick and easy to read. So I kind of time myself. I'm like, how long would it take me to write, read this book? And it takes about two hours. Um, so I wanted it to be like quick and dirty to read. And then I wanted it to not only be my story and kind of my advice, but also, you know, successful founders, um, that have been deemed successful by the press, but really kind of talk to them about where they've been challenged, where they've been vulnerable and how they like use this mental talk track to get out of the rut. And like that, that's what I wasn't getting from books. And that's what I was getting a lot of questions on when I was talking to founders was like, what do you say to yourself to kind of get out of bed in the morning to kind of keep going? And that was, that was the real, that is the real crux of the book. It's like, what are the talk tracks that you can use to, to rebound and get back onto your path? Um, your success path. So, so when do you think is the, or how do you advise founders now on, on when is the right time to raise capital? You mentioned, you know, maybe it would have been, you know, a good decision to, to bootstrap longer with Jor, but um, what, you know, wh- when is the right time to raise capital? I mean, the right time to raise capital is in a position of power, right? I see so many founders going to raise capital because they're desperate. That's like the exact opposite time when you want to raise capital. You want to raise capital when you've de-risked the investment um, or there's only just one or two things that the investor um, views as a risk. You know, when there's like five or six things that the investor views as a risk, like you haven't de-risked it enough, Um yeah, because so. raising capital, like you, you know, it's it's celebrated in the media, like oh, this company just raised money. But there's also the you know the expectations after that, because there's the you know VCs that are looking for a return on that investment, and then there's their customers, the LPs that are looking for a return on investment. So, you know, the expectations are just accelerated at a greater magnitude. Yeah, and if you haven't de-risked the investment enough, then you won't be able to put your foot on the gas after you've raised that capital. And that's kind of the implicit expectation where it's like once you've raised millions and millions of dollars, like you, you need to start to scale. Now, what about hiring? That's always a, a, you know, a challenging thing for companies to do, especially first-time founders. So if you're a non-technical founder, like how do you think about you know, you know, building the company you know, from an engineering component when it is an actual tech company? Yeah, I mean, I was a non-technical sole founder um, for Jor, and you know that was really, really difficult. And I needed a lot of um, mentors and people around me who had technical backgrounds um, to to really um, advise and help and come up with a rubric in which to evaluate tech founders. But I think it's um, you know at a base level, anybody that you hire has to have the same energy level that you do. Has to be you know super smart. I mean you can't you can't give people or intelligence like they have to have it, um, and they have to have. Um, you know, a high level of integrity. So it's integrity, work ethic, and intelligence and aptitude. So those are the things that I think, you know, you need to screen for in, in anybody that you hire. Now, what about, um, you know, before writing a book, you, you know, you're a frequent contributor to lots of publications like TechCrunch and 
Huffington Post, an entrepreneur. Um, so is that something that other entrepreneurs should be doing more often, you know, writing about, you know, entrepreneurship or raising capital or whatever the subject matter uh, they're an expert in? I think so. I mean, you, you don't necessarily need to do it publicly. I mean, I write uh, every day um, and I write in the morning and I write in the evening, even if it's a couple of lines um, about just something that I'm thinking about, whether it's like a new business idea or just something that's, you know, taking up a lot of mind share um, and I need to like kind of get it off off my brain. Um, but I think, I think it's really important for entrepreneurs to write because it's just kind of a way to cleanse your brain as well as kind of, you know, get to the next level on ideas you're noodling about. So you're busy doing lots of things these days, but, uh, you know, outside of, of, of work, what do you like to do? Um, I love, I love to spend time with my family. I have two young girls. Um, and so we spend a lot of time together, my husband as well. And, you know, I'm outside a lot. So I, I like to be outside going on hikes or going for a run or playing tennis. Um, I do yoga every day, meditate every day. I journal every day. Those are, those are some things that I kind of consistently do. Yeah, I like that piece of advice with the the daily writing. I, there's a, a contributor to VentureFizz, Christina Luconi, who uh, she uh, is a frequent contributor. That she she wrote uh, a blog post every single day for for a year, and it just got her into that habit of writing. And it's something that she's continued on since then. And it's just been, uh, I think, something that's uh, helpful for her not always to be thinking about how she can be perfecting her craft in terms of what she does for work, but it also, like you said, it just you know, helps cleanse a little bit too. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would have been able to write um, this book, Startups and Downs, in 90 days had I not kind of exercised that writing muscle for so many years. Yep. Um, so I think it's, it's good. I also think it's great for like clarity of thought when you're talking to people, um, especially like your team, if you're if you're, you know, running teams, um, not necessarily as a CEO or founder, but, you know, just like a product team or an engineering team to kind of get your thoughts down on paper before you kind of um, guide your team to action. Well, Mona, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and, you know, all the great experience you've had as an entrepreneur, uh, investor, and, and author. Great. I'm so happy. Thanks for all the good questions. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.